This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 3-1 pitch, swing and a drive. Deep to right field, way up there, way out of here. Goodbye baseball. Eight strikeout for the King tonight and make it... 23 consecutive scoreless innings for Felix. Right three called on the outside corner, and there it is. It's time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Kyle Seager, that just happened. Thank you very much. Now, here's your host, Gary Hill. It is time for the Seattle Mariners baseball podcast. Gary Hill with you. Thanks for being here as we dive into the final game of the three-game series against the Houston Astros as Houston vaults themselves back into the wild card. They flip-flop with the Angels. So now the Astros back in control by half a game with the Mariners. Their say in the race, well, it's come to an end as the Mariners have an off day today and then will take on the Oakland A's for three games to end the season. Felix Hernandez has been shut down for the season, which I'm sure you've heard by now. We'll talk more about Felix Hernandez and his season coming up, if you can believe this, in the final podcast of the year, of the year in terms of this baseball season, coming up on Monday. That's going to be the last podcast of the year. So, wow, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe, but we're right here at the end, the final three games. Coming up in this one, Shannon Dreher, great conversation. She sits down with Jerry Depoto, so you get really good insight on what he is looking at and thinking, and it's really it's fantastic. That comes up in a few minutes. Rick Riz, really good conversation with Tom Wilhelmsen, who's been so good That's for a while now, but especially since he took that job as closer. He's been lights out. And I had a chance to catch up with an old friend, a former Mariner, Mark McLemore. And that comes up as well in a few minutes. So a lot to get to in this one, including some big moments in the game last night against the Houston Astros. Of course, a really interesting game, a Johnny Allstaff game. So the bullpen on call from the very beginning. Tony Zick was the first one on hand. He took the ball initially and looked good. And the 2-2 and a swing and a miss at a slider strike three. Zick strikes out Carlos Correa, and that will retire the side. A 1-2-3 first inning. How about that? Tony Zick, his first major league start, and he takes care of the Astros here in the top of the first. Mariners had some big moments offensively, including Kyle Seager, as he sets a career high in home runs last night. The pitch, curve, swinging a fly ball. Well hit into the gap in right center field. Going, going. Goodbye, baseball. Career high for Kyle Seager, his 26th home run of the season. A three-run home run here in the bottom of the fifth for Kyle. And it's now the Mariners five and the Astros three. Holy smokes, what a shot by Seager. And it's amazing, Kyle Seager does it again. His career high in home runs, 26 now. Half of them exactly 
have come against lefties. And we've talked about this in terms of how good he's been as a left-handed hitter hitting against left-handed pitching this year. But his home run total against lefties, if you look at the leaders in the American League in home runs against lefties, no matter switch hitter, right-handed hitter, left-handed hitter, no matter what, you have Nelson Cruz, the most home runs against lefties in the American League with 14. And Kyle Seeger is second in the American League with 13. That includes all hitters, left-handed, right-handed, doesn't matter. Kyle Seeger, 13 home runs against left-handed pitchers. That is the second most in the American League. If Nelson Cruz's teammate was not in front of him, he would lead the American League as a left-handed hitter in home runs against lefties, which I think is just remarkable. But funny enough... He was tied for about 30 seconds with Nelson Cruz. Home runs against lefties because Nelson Cruz, he went yard two. To Odinelli. Swing and a well-hit ball. Deep into right field. Springer going back. Looking up. Goodbye baseball. Back-to-back home run. Seager and Nelson Cruz. His 44th home run of the year. And the Mariners now lead 6-3. to three. And with that home run, Nelson Cruz has just tied Jay Buhner with 44 home runs for the most home runs by a right-handed hitter in Seattle Mariners history. Congratulations, Nelson Cruz. You just tied the bone. He sure did. Six on the Mariners' single-season list. Tied with Jay Buhner. The only hitter in front of him, Ken Griffey Jr. 56. 56. 49, 48, 45. Those are the seasons that Griffey had ahead of Buner and Nelson Cruz. 44 big home runs for Nelson Cruz. So a big night offensively for the M's uh, with a couple of significant home runs uh, with Kyle Seeger, with Nelson Cruz. And it looked good as the Mariners had the lead at one point. I mean, it was a back-and-forth battle. But in the end... The Astros would score three in the fifth, three in the sixth, and one in the seventh. Another home run from Chris Carter along the way, who continues to torture the Mariners. And Houston takes advantage of some shaky defense along the way as well. So they have a 7-6 to six lead. The Mariners threatening in the ninth inning, but they can't find a way to get it done. And the pitch swing and a line drive into right center. And coming up to make the catch is Gomez. A throwback to first. Sliding in is Jones. He's out at first base on a double play. Eight to three. And the Astros win it tonight. Seven to six to take the finale of the three-game series. And the base running mistake by James Jones. He's doubled up at first base. And that was it. That was the ball game. The Astros, they get the win 7-6 to six over the Mariners. They take the game. They win the series. And now they have the second wild card spot heading into the weekend. It is going to be a wild weekend as the Astros will take on the Diamondbacks for three. The Mariners an off day starting tomorrow and then the Mariners will play the Oakland A's. And again, Felix Hernandez will not be a part of that series coming up as Felix has been shut down for the season and he will fall short of 200 strikeouts, 200 plus innings for the, well, he's done it six straight years. He will not make it seven, 
but still one of the longest streaks in baseball history. Only three pitchers have longer streaks than six. Roger Clemens, Walter Johnson, Tom Seaver. So still tremendously impressive what Felix Hernandez has done, but he will not extend the streak to seven. It sits at six and still had a very, very nice year that we'll talk about coming up in the podcast on Monday. Right now, we're going to turn things over to Shannon Dreher. She had a great conversation with new Mariners general manager, Jerry Depoto. You're always creating designs in your mind, What, what uh, how a roster should come together, the type of player you're looking for. You want to be diverse. You want to be flexible. You want to be sustainable. And, uh, and that last one is the, the sustainability. You have to achieve all the other things to get there. And you know, there is some work to be done here. You know, there, there's a, a, founda- a foundation of player with guys like Robbie Cano and Nelson Cruz and Felix and, and Kyle Seeger that really gives you something special to start with. And I think there's enough of the the supplemental players on the roster that really make this thing go. And, you know, to me, you win championships in the trenches. Uh, you know, you have to control the line of scrimmage to, to win the game. And uh, in baseball, that's the strike zone. How do you make that happen? You bring in uh, support players, role players that can augment the greatness of your core. Uh, and this core is great, uh, and and we'll build on that. And I have I have no doubt that we'll do the right things in scouting and player development to to create a, a super highway of player talent to this level. And in the meantime, because that does take time, we will access players via trade and free agency to help create a layer of depth, so that once that first design goes goes awry, because inevitably there will be a, an artery that you can't avoid taking. Uh, that there is a plan B in place to, to make sure that, that we don't spiral out of control. You mentioned the ballpark very early on in your comments, and uh, there's been a lot of talk, why does this team win on the road and why not at home? And you can look at it, well, perhaps they're not built for home. What do you see when you look at this park, and, and what do you think the Seattle Mariners ultimately should be as, as far as that profile of what that team is? You know, the profile, I, I said it during the, the presser, the, the Mariners need to pitch, they need to catch it, and they need to be athletic. And I, I think, you know, that general description really fits the Pat Gillick Mariners of the of the early 2000s. And, you know, when you had guys like Ichiro and Mike Cameron and, and, and the, the like running, it was just a really fun-to-watch athletic team that happened to have a, a good deal of under-the-radar pitching, guys like Gil Mesh and Joel Pinheiro, guys, guys who were sneaky good uh, the <laughs> early years of Freddie Garcia. Where, where they were a lot better than the than the the rest of the major league landscape knew they were, this ballpark allows you to do that. This this ballpark allows you some flexibility in building a pitching staff. You don't have to shy away from guys who throw strikes and pitch to contact. You don't have to shy away from guys who give up fly balls at a higher rate than you'd like to see because the ballpark will help you, uh, provided you build a, a defense that that sucks those balls up and turns them into outs. Mm. So you know. Don't know how much of that is going to be doable in 30 days, but I am very confident that that's going to be doable in time. And you know, whether it's April or May or September of next year, you will see this this team progress to the sustainability part because the the rest of it is is the foundation is in place. We just need to accent it. Okay, you brought up the 30 days, and you mentioned in the press conference that you want this front office, you want this organization operational by meetings season. What can you do in 30 days? 
You know, I think the, the idea here is first to look in the engine room, as, as I've called it, the scouting and player development departments. Uh, we need to determine who among those people uh, we were moving forward with and who among those people may not fit. I'd say there's going to be far more of the, of the former, the people that do fit. And, you know, we do believe in, in scouting and player development as the, the, the most crucial part of what we're doing. That is, that's a foregone conclusion. Uh, we'll address that first. I would like to visit with the Major League Manager staff and medical team frequently this week to gain an understanding first of who Lloyd is and, and, and what he's about, the staff and what they're about, because these are critical decisions that we'll make together. And uh, the other is the medical team. You know, the, maybe the most important and, and under-the-radar thing we need to make sure of is the players we have, both at the major and minor league levels, are they healthy? Because if they can't go take their at-bats or throw their innings, now we're in trouble. You know, we we don't know many things about the 2016 baseball season other than the fact that we're going to show up and play. The one thing we do know for certain is that one way or the other, we're going to have to throw about 1,450 innings mm -hmm. as a pitching staff. And if you don't have the guys that can throw the 1,450 innings, you're in trouble. And, you know, if you get to pitcher number, starting pitcher number 7, 8, 9, and 10, as you inevitably will, it takes 10 to get through a season. Right now, we don't have 10 to get through a season. And, you know, it's going to take you roughly 23 to get through a full season in terms of terms of total pitchers. We don't have 23 at this point. So, you know, between now and first day of spring training next year, and more importantly, between now and the end of the finish line next September, October, we have to find a way to get to that layer of depth or level of depth, or we won't be as competitive as we want to be. And you would say that right now that's a much more pressing need than on the offensive side of the ball? I think so, which is an odd narrative for the Mariners. Yeah. You know, it's a... I think the general narrative nationwide has always been, ah, they can pitch, they can't right. hit. I don't think that's true. You know, I think the the middle of the lineup, again, going back to the Seager, Nelson Cruz, Robbie Cano, is, 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 is as stable as it gets. You've had nice seasons from from solid players. Like uh, Brad Miller has had a very nice season. I think there's more upside in there. Seth Smith has done a very nice job in, in kind of creating lineup length. We do need to create length at the bottom of the of the lineup, which is critical, and there's some young players that may help there. But the pitching is, is in general, when you're talking about that starter 7, 8, 9, and 10, and the bullpen that happens after your, your 6th, 7th, and 8th guys, mm -hmm. uh, those are areas that, that have fallen short for, for the Mariners this year. And, and injury is inevitable underperformance is going to happen and and in in part you have to be in a position to cover that need when it arises when when one ligament pops or one knee gets twisted or one pitcher gives up home runs at a higher frequency than they're used to you have to be able to go to the next level it's funny i mean people will say you're a number guy and then you you look and you see the broad broad baseball background what do you see yourself as I, I like to see myself as balanced. I, I consider all forms of information. And you know, the first thing I'll tell the, the people in scouting and in player development as we start this, because, again, they are kind of the, the lifeblood of what we'll do, is that information is king, and we have to consider all of it. I will talk to Lloyd and the staff downstairs about the same thing. And, you know, the minute you stop considering the information that's at your, at your fingertips, now you're making mistakes. I want to know. I want to know what the best pitch to throw this, this hitter in a 2-0 count is. I want to know what the best way to raise this young player into a future major leaguer may be. Based on our past experiences the, and the current trends and what's happened, where we project this to be in the future. So, you know, I've, I've seen myself portrayed as a, the kind of the new age version of Bill James, who, who used to wear a player's hat. I don't know that that's 
entirely accurate, but I do subscribe to a lot of the theories that, that Bill and others have come up with sabermetrically. I do believe in using statistics to help make better decisions. And, and I think, honestly, the way the game has evolved, if you're not considering those things, you're making a big mistake. What opened your eyes to the numbers? You know, I, I was always interested in them as a kid, but maybe the most profound enlightening for me came when I worked for the Red Sox. I, I took a job with the Red Sox in the, the winter of 2002 and worked with them through the World Series in 2004 before leaving to, to go direct a department. But um, Bill James was a member of the, the front office that we put together during Theo's first year mm-hmm. in Boston. Uh, I came over there as a as a major league scout and and joined the group and we had a wildly talented and very analytical front office and and I saw things happen and I I saw us score more runs than any team had ever scored with a bunch of guys that most most teams would have looked at as spare parts mm-hmm. you know and one of whom has gone on to become what I think is a Hall of Fame player and David Ortiz who is a, a roughly a, the equivalent of a, a freebie on the market after being released and and waived. Uh, Kevin Millar, who we picked up similarly, you know, he yeah. was trying. To, they were trying to get him to Japan via right. waivers, and we picked him up that way. And Bill Miller, who we picked up, hit eight four, eight, eighth in the lineup, and won a batting title because our lineup was that deep. And and uh, you know, from from one through nine, watching how you build a grinding, run scoring, dynamic offense. Now the game has changed since that time in in, in the way you score runs, or or in the number, the volume of runs you'll score. But I don't think stylistically you change the concepts of, of how you, you, you achieve it. And, uh, you know, from the way we used the bullpen to the way we talked about players to the way we broke them down, th- those years were very pivotal for me in, in developing my, I, I want to say, my reliance on, on the numbers, but my belief that the numbers will lead you to, uh, if not to the right answer, at least to the ballpark where now you have a chance to make the right decision. How do you communicate that? Fairly easily. Talk about it all the time. You know, we, I think we bring people in who are generally well-balanced in what they do. We want them to, to consider all things. And whether it be going through draft meetings, talking through, you know, potential for trade, we will introduce all these things. Fundamental basic scouting reports, old-time traditional, how do you feel about the player? And then here's what he's done. And, you know, as I said in the presser, one of the things that, I, that I've used as a, as a tenant and, and kind of, a, a, I guess, a running platform is we have to be an organization who you know, we, we can identify through what we see, and then we have to be able to, to rely on what we know and, and balance them, the scales in that way. And sometimes you, you may take 51 of this and 49 of that, but at the end of the day, anytime you're out of balance, you need to check yourself and your process. Taking your way back. What was it that got you into baseball? When did you know this is my sport? Uh, boy, it seems like birth. You know, <laughs> I, I I don't ever remember not being interested in baseball. I I, I believe my grandfather, my great grandfather, uh, had a farm just outside of Cooperstown, New York, and. I grew up in New Jersey, and every summer we would go visit my, my great-grandfather, or frequently, not every summer, but frequently we would go gr- visit him. And, uh, and my, my dad would always take me to the Hall of Fame and mm-hmm. just developed a, 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 a real passion for the history of the game, for watching it, and you know, still have baby pictures of my dad putting me on the mound at, at, uh, at Doubleday Field in Cooperstown. And, and uh, but 
probably from that point forward, I don't remember that day, but I, I have a picture that suggests it happened. I do remember many times in my teenage years, especially uh, sitting on the floor in the in the the Hall of Fame, filing through postcards and reading the back of of you know the statistical breakdown of what players who who most people would have never heard of, you know, High Pockets Kelly and you know Rabbit Marinville, and it, it just it, it, people people forget the greatness of the game and the way it's connected. Uh, that helped a great deal, and then obviously, the, the I, I feel like there were times in my life where I excelled as a player. Obviously, enough so that I was able to, to play in this league for for eight years, and uh, it it ended far too soon for me. Uh, I, I, I was able to play until I was 32 years old, and and uh, and then forced to retire due to injury. And it never dawned on me to do anything else. I, as a matter of fact. The, the then general manager of the Rockies was Dan O'Dowd, uh, who had just started his first year with the Rockies. And uh, Dan was my farm director when I came through the minor leagues with the Indians. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd known him my entire career. And, you know, he was so he was there at the beginning and he was there at the end. And, you know, on the day that the doctors told me I was done and that I was not going to be able to move forward uh, as a player, uh, you know, obviously I'm sitting in a training room and I'm crying. And teammates are coming by and rubbing my head and giving me hugs. And, and Dan walked up to me and he said, you know what you're going to do? You're going to take this like a man, like you've done everything else. You're going to go put on a pair of real pants and come help us on the other side build a championship team. And that's what I did. I, I walked across the lawn and I started working in the front office. And and uh, I, it was, it's was it been a tremendous journey. I, I've done a lot of different things in, in the game. And as I've said to anybody, I don't care what you call me. I don't care what the title you give me. I just want to help do the right thing, put players in a position to succeed, and then go find more of them. So great conversation there with the new Mariners general manager and another great conversation, this one with Rick Riz and Tom Wilhelmsen. Tom, before we get to your job and how you do your job, you know, relieving is not the easiest thing in the world. What makes a good reliever for the kids out there who want to pitch in relief? Well, you got to take care of yourself. You got to take care of your body and your arm. And, uh, you know, you got to get a routine because any given day you can be out there. So you got to be ready to go uh, just about any day, of the, any day of the year. Every reliever at one time was a starter. And then there's that transition to becoming a reliever, whether it's a long relief and or a closer, a setup guy. When did it happen for you and how did you make that transition? Um, that happened in 2011 when I broke with the Mariners at a spring training. I was a starter uh, up until then, and uh, I made the team, and they said, you're going to be in the bullpen, and I said, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, mostly thank you for allowing me to make the team. It really didn't matter what, what uh, position I was in, but um, that's where it all went down. Just got to the big leagues and became a reliever. So, okay, a starter pitches every five days. you got a routine. How did that routine change? A routine then changed for you as a reliever, and what did you have to do? Well, I uh, lightened up the workload a little bit. Um, the running was a little bit different, and as a reliever, you're you're making like short bursts of power for on a good day, five minutes max. So you do more sprint work, whereas a starter, um, you know, you need to build up endurance. So your workouts are a little bit longer. You're running long distance to help you carry you into the seventh inning. You earned your way to the back part of the uh, bullpen you you set up and did a great job now you're closing and doing a great job what is the difference between that eighth inning and the ninth inning um i you know i think it's really just the stress one ninth inning guy will put on himself or not for that matter um it's the same game you got to go out and you got to get ahead of guys especially in the ninth inning you got to get three outs um but i think the biggest the biggest thing is uh is the stress level knowing that 
you're the last guy with the lead to come in and get those final three outs. And, um, you know, if you can deal with that, then I think you'll be okay. I was just going to ask you, is that the best feeling in the world for a closer? Get that final out of the ball game, shake hands with a catcher, walk off the field with a win, and you and a save. Yeah, right. <laughs> it totally is. It doesn't <laughs> seem like a lot of work when you look around and you're clapping everyone's hands who had just been out there for three hours busting their butt to give you the ball for what should be three quick outs. Um, but it really is. Yeah, there's nothing like it. Visiting with Tom Wilhelmson here on Rick's Tips. And, Rick, let's go back, or Tom, let's go back a few years to uh, Tucson. And were you always a pitcher? I was, yeah, when I got to high school, I saw a curveball um, when I was in the batter's box. <laughs> and then I decided shortly thereafter that I wanted no piece of that. Um, so I became a pitcher after that and uh, left the batting to everyone else. All right, that leads me to my next question. When did you, as a pitcher, start to throw a curveball? Because that's always a question for young kids listening to this right now and coaches and dads. So when did you start to throw a curveball? I didn't learn to throw a real curveball until after I graduated high school. Um, my father wouldn't allow it. Very smart man. Um, when I was a little bit younger, maybe 15, 15 years old, he had me see a great pitching coach um, who actually is the pitching coach of uh, the Houston Astros now. And Brent Strom, and um, so we went and we visited him, and he taught me how to throw a little league curveball, which is um, was effective at the time, but I, I can't seem to find it anymore. Um, <laughs> and he showed my father how how uh, per, you know, he pulled him off to the side and said, "When he becomes of age, when you will, will allow him to throw a real curveball, this is how you do it." And after I graduated high school, uh, we broke the curveball in. We have a great curveball right now. What other things did Mr. Strom uh, teach you as far as fastball and throwing strikes? Uh, the best pitch in the world, I, I was told from many pitching coaches, we've got one right here, Rick Waits, is strike one. Yeah, well, that's that's definitely the key, and that's, uh, it just puts the batter on the defense as opposed to the offense. Um, so strike one's huge. Uh, you know, I was so young when I met Brett Strom, and he was so stern, it was quite scary, actually. So I just sat there and listened to him, and, and I kind of picked up a little bit of, uh, like, his demeanor, which was, I'm going after you, no BS, here we go, I'm going to get you. And um, that was something I took from uh, our meeting. So what's the best advice? Now, here we are, established major league pitcher, an outstanding closer right now for this ball club. What's the best advice you would give to a kid who wants to do what you do? you got to... You got to set goals, and you got to think about them every day. Um, you got to believe you can do it. You got to believe you can reach those goals, um, even when you think you can't. You still got to grind it out, and um, and sure enough, you keep asking for it and you keep working at it. It's going to happen. And have a short memory sometimes. You need a short memory all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's always fun to catch up with Mark McLemore to reminisce about his playing days and some of the great teams he was on, but also a little comparison to a player on the Mariners' current roster. Here it is. Well, Mac, we were just talking about 2001, and we just passed over the anniversary date of when baseball returned in 2001 and that moment on the field where you guys clinched and uh, you brought the American flag on the field, and what a moment that was. What do you remember from that night? Wow. Uh, I just remember the general feeling uh, of everybody of just solidarity. I think everybody was together, not just uh, the team, uh, not the fans, but I think uh, the country and the world. It was just a, a special moment. That's probably the uh, most special moment of my career for sure. You guys were so good that season, 116 wins. It was incredible. What made you guys so good? Wow. You know, that's, I think a lot of things went into that. Um, obviously, a lot of luck. There's no question about it. 
but we had a team full of veteran players that understood what the, what the goal was each and every day. It wasn't about an individual. It was about, um, you know, a team goal. And, um, you know, everybody answered the bell every day. Uh, there wasn't some. There wasn't anybody that was rooting against a, a teammate for you know. Hey, this guy's in, you know playing my spot today, or I need to be hitting third or fourth. Or there was none of that. There was just one common goal. And, um, you know, we didn't. I mean, we had leaders on the team. Obviously, we didn't really need leaders because we had so many veterans, and you know they understood what needed to be done every day. And um, you know. Lou understood how to manage a team like that as well. You know, he just let us go play. And I think that's, that, that, that plays a, a huge part in it. You didn't have a manager that had to be responsible for every move. You know, he trusted the veterans that were on that team to do what needed to be done when they were out there on the field. He didn't really have to do, uh, you know, a whole lot of motivating or anything like that. So uh, I think a lot of factors went into it. Brad Miller has done something this year that only one other Mariner has done, and that was you, and that's in one season to start at every position in the outfield, start at third, start at short, start at second, and start at DH. Brad Miller is the only other Mariner to do that besides you. How did you become so versatile? What does it take? Wow. Uh, one, a lot of hard work. I had to work uh, hard at uh, third base was probably the most mm -hmm. difficult position for me, but um, you know, just just hard work, and I don't know. I was just always able to catch the ball. Uh, it, I mean, that, that's that's really the bottom line. I was just always able to catch the ball. I was a magnet. Uh, you know, from the time I can remember playing this game, uh, I've always been able to catch the ball. It wasn't that difficult for me. So being able to go in the outfield and play there, I just kind of, you know, went back to my football days and just running under the baseball, you know, <laughs> running under a football. It's the same thing. I, you know, in my mind, it was the same thing. So that's why it wasn't a tough adjustment for me going to the outfield. And uh, the infield positions, hey, just uh, watch how other guys played it. Mm -hmm. uh, I came, I was drafted as a shortstop, so that was just going back to my old route. So that was uh, fairly easy. And then played second base, obviously, the majority of my career. Uh, and then uh, I think, like I said, the biggest thing was just really adjusting to third base and figuring out uh, what I needed to do with my ability uh, at third base in order to play it well. It's amazing when you think about it. You played every day. You played all these different spots. You were a switch hitter as well. How much extra work did you have to put in to maintain everything? A ton. And, and you know, and, and that's, you know, you're probably the first person that really has asked, ever asked me that question. People don't realize a switch hitter has to take twice the number of swings mm -hmm. as a guy that just has to worry about one side. And then for a guy that plays multiple positions, I had to take ground, I had to take ground balls every day, no matter if I was in the infield or not, because uh, if I started in the outfield, there were a lot of games where I ended up in the infield. So I had to stay on top of it by being in uh, by by taking ground balls every single day, even though I'm playing left field mm -hmm. or center field or right field. I wouldn't necessarily take fly balls. I had to take ground balls. So a tremendous amount of work went into it, and people really just don't even <laughs> think about that. Well, Mac, it's been fun to catch up. It's fun to talk about what was a great year in Mariners history. Thanks so much. You're welcome, man. Anytime. Appreciate it.